Let's open our Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. We have made our way down through verse 12 in the introduction that runs from verse 8 through verse 15. Let's read it again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Amen and amen. I hope from verses 8 through 12 that we will remember that God is to be thanked for our faith and that our faith should be great and that our faith should be spoken of throughout the whole world and let that be said of this church. Verse 9, that we are to swear in the name of God and that good Christians are able to call God as a witness that they are living the kind of life that the Bible describes and that we should serve with our spirit intensely in the gospel of His Son And that our praying should be without ceasing and always. And you can do that by making mention of your requests and not by elaborating more than necessary. Verse 10 tells us that our plans should always be submitted to the will of God, even when we make requests in prayer. Even Jesus prayed, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that was a very serious need in his life. He still submitted it to the will of God. Verse 11 is the definition of real love. For I long to see you, not to hold them, not to watch the children play in the sandbox, not to see your gene pool in another person smiling at you, not to hear their flattering words. I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. And let that be our goal for our children and for all in our families and for our church. That we always want to make each other better in the Lord. And he explains it further in verse 12. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. This is ministerial. I will grant you that. But I am trying to make a practical application to your lives that if you want to have a great family, verses 11 and 12 describe you being an apostle to your family. And that is that you long to see your children and you take advantage of every moment you have with them to impart to them some spiritual gift that God has given you to establish them in the faith because then you get the ultimate blessing of a great family. 
And that is verse 12, the mutual comfort of sitting around sharing mutual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the King James Bible and coming heaven. Amen. That is a family. Right. So pretend you're an apostle and your Romans are your children. And go for it. But know that the text here is ministerial. This is Paul setting a standard for us, and he's defining love for us. We come to verse 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. He's already told them that he's longed to see them for some time, and now at length in verse 10, but he wants them to know, and he doesn't want, he wants them to know and not be ignorant of the fact that he had oftentimes purposed to come unto you. I had purposed to come, and Acts 19 verse 21 tells us that Paul had purposed to come, but he was let hitherto. Now this is where we love our King James Bibles. We've already talked about Paul purposing to go north in Acts 16, God saying no. Purposing to go south, God said no. Coming from the east, he ends up going west. The man from Macedonia asked him to come over, and a great church is built there. Lydia's saved, the jailers saved, their households, and there's a church. We've already been over that. So, passing over the first few words, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed, but was let hitherto. Now, the word let means to hinder something. You say, what are you talking about? The word let means to allow something. If I let my child go to the store, I'm allowing them to go to the store. Aha! That's because you live in the year 2009. The word let in the Bible means to hinder. It means to restrict. It means to prevent. It means to obstruct. It means to withhold someone from doing something. Now, if we take our Bibles and we say, you know what? But that word let isn't used that way anymore. So there in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, I think I want to change it. Why don't we just change it? But I, I was not, I was hindered hitherto. Let's get the word let out of there and put the word hindered in. Let's keep every other word in Romans chapter 1. Every word of God is pure. But let's change that one so that we can understand it better. But I was hindered hitherto. What happens? What happens is you just pulled one pickup stick out of the pile. You know what happens to the rest? They all go tumbling down and roll off the table. Because you just took the word let out of a context where we can tell what it means so that we know what it means in 2 Thessalonians 2 when it talks about someone not letting, someone letting the man of sin. And it was the Caesars in Rome. It's the internal integrity of the Bible that we love these little words that we don't use that way any longer, but the Holy Spirit used them in a certain way. And once we get them in one passage right, we can go to other passages and compare and cross-reference verses and compare spiritual things with spiritual, meaning the words that the Holy Spirit uses to convey truth. And that's how we end up with the truth. I like it just the way it is. I don't want the word hindered there at all. I want the word let. I want somebody to read it and say this Bible's so old-fashioned I can't understand it. Thank you very much. We'll understand it. Listen, God chose to communicate His wisdom by reading. And this Bible was written at about a sixth grade level. This is one of the easiest to read Bibles that there is yet. There are scientific methods used. You can go on, go on, go home and in a Google search box type in, don't put any Bible version. Just put Bibles readability. 
There are scientists that have done studies based on the number of average syllables per word, the average number of words used in the Bible, the construction, the length of the sentences, and so forth, the length of the clauses, and you'll find out that the King James Bible is still one of the most readable Bibles of all of them, including the ones they've dumbed down to the Dick and Jane level. I can't help it if you don't know how to pronounce some of the big names. That's not readability. That's the fact that you didn't pay attention in the first grade. You were looking at Susie across the room, and you couldn't wait for graham crackers and milk or recess to throw stones at her. Because if you learn how to pronounce words, all those big, long words can be sounded out. That isn't readability. That's just complicated names. You run into those today. Readability. I don't mind that one bit that what we have in parentheses has the word let, and it means the opposite of the way that we understand that word today. Paul was hindered hitherto. I had purposed to come to you, but I couldn't get there because I was hindered, I was restricted, I was obstructed, I was restrained from coming. We can learn the definition of a word just by reading the sentence around it. When you're in a spelling bee in school, children, you're supposed to ask the teacher before you get so eager that you want to spell the word, you ask the teacher, would you please use that in a sentence? And if you'll remember that, you'll remember how the Word of God is to be studied. The words in the Word of God are understood by their sentences around them, not by what a dictionary says. When the Bible says you're not supposed to bring the price of a dog into the house of God, what do you think it's talking about? You can't sell your furry little creature that you have at home and put it in the offering plate? That's up for you to figure out. Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. It ain't talking about any furry creature. The price of a dog. Don't bring it into the house of God. You won't find it in a dictionary. Not any dictionary. Not even the 28 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary, not even in their most obscure 82nd definition for the word dog, will it have the use of the word in Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. But if you read Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18, you'll know exactly what it means. I love the Bible. And I hope, and I, I know that you can meet a lot that will exceed me in a lot of ways. But one way I don't want you to ever meet anyone that can exceed me is in the love for this book, in a love for God's Word, and the love for every word that makes up God's Word. And I love Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. You can't even figure it out if I was to give you 28 volumes. That's the standard on the English language. For those of you in audio land, you can look it up too and have a lesson in the words of God. We compare spiritual things with spiritual. We love the words that the Holy Ghost teacheth. Paul said, I don't want you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Paul wanted to have fruit among them like he had among the Thessalonians. What was the fruit in Thessalonica? He took idol-worshipping pagans, And they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And they did it so dramatically that from them sounded out the word of the Lord so that in every place, wherever Paul went, they already knew the character of the Thessalonian saints. It was their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope that Paul could speak of and say, I know that you are elect of God by those three things. 
The Thessalonians bore that fruit, and Paul wanted that fruit being in the church that was at Rome. But he was hindered from being there so far. He was hindered by his circumstances because he was so busy. He was hindered by God's providence because God directed him elsewhere. And he was hindered by Satan's efforts to keep him from preaching the gospel there. And he was hindered by wicked men who didn't allow him to preach the gospel. We don't have, if we took the time, it'd be a sermon or two right there on how Paul was let or hindered from coming to Rome. By God's will of his circumstances, by God's providence in where he wanted him, by Satan's efforts to hinder him, and by devilish men that were continually opposing him in the ministry. And there are numerous verses on each of these points that describe Paul being hindered. But he wanted the church that he to know at Rome that he had tried to come to visit them. But he wanted them to be as fruitful as the Thessalonians were. And remember, this is love. He wanted them to be fruitful. He wanted them to be bearing fruit. And he wanted to help them bear fruit. That I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. They heard about Paul's travels. They heard about the Thessalonians. They heard about what happened at Corinth. They heard about what happened at Philippi. And the other churches where Paul preached and ministered. They heard the reputation of the effect he had on those churches. And he says, I want to have the same thing at Rome. I've just been hindered from getting there so far. I want that for you. I don't want you to be ignorant of it. I've just been let hitherto. So far, I've been hindered from making it to Rome. There's more that could be said. We could look at all the epistles of the New Testament in order to preach all the way through verse 13. Even as among other Gentiles. Do you know what we would have to do to preach that clause fully? We'd have to look at all the other epistles to see what Paul was able to accomplish at those churches in those saints. But I hope that a summary is good enough for you on that point so that we can keep moving on to the 14th verse. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Let's start with the first three words. I am debtor. I am debtor. Paul, who are you in debt to? Why are you in debt? What do you mean by being in debt? What put Paul in debt? Paul was in debt for having persecuted Christians. He had spent his life persecuting the church of God, hauling men and women and putting them in prison, causing them to blaspheme, and had testified against Stephen and held garments for those that stoned him to death. He was in debt because of what he had done in his past life against the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God had saved him the chiefest of sinners who now wanted to spend his life for the cause of Christ and for the benefit of his kingdom. Okay, Paul, I understand that. Is there any other reason that you're in debt? I'm in debt because God has chosen me to the ministry. And woe is me if I preach not the gospel. If I preach this thing and do this willingly, then I have a reward. Paul said about himself, if I preach and travel around being an apostle because it's my choice to do it, then I have a reward because I'm doing what I like to do. But if I do this thing against my will, then obviously a dispensation of the grace of God has been given me. You know what he adds? And woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. So he's doing it out of debt to the God who called him and made him an apostle. I am debtor. Paul, is there any other way that you're a debtor? I'm a debtor because Jesus Christ loved me so much that he died for me. That that means that I was dead and condemned to death. And because now I live by his death, my life that I live, I should live for him. Paul says, does that make logical sense to you? 
That is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Yes, Paul, we understand we're in debt the same way. Yes, you are. Paul, is there any other way that you're in debt? I'm in debt because the gospel message that I carry is incontrovertibly great. I am in debt because the message I have is unbelievably good. It is phenomenal mysteries that I've been given that have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. I'm in debt to get this truth out. Yes, you are, Paul. Yeah, but so are you, Paul says back to us. We're in debt because we have an incontrovertibly great mystery of godliness revealed to us. What was it? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. That is a great mystery. That's just one of them. There's a whole lot more that can be stuck in that, but that's the way he summarized it in 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul, is there any other way that you're in debt? Yes, I'm in debt to God's elect. God's elected them, and He's chosen them to eternal life. But unless I get the gospel to them, they won't know what Jesus Christ has done for them and what God has in store for them. So I endure all things for the elect's sake. 2 Timothy 2.10 I am debtor. Are we a debtor? Yes, we should be debtor too. Do we still, do we have elect that we're brought across their path and we want to show them the way of God more perfectly like Aquila and Priscilla? Yep. And we're in debt. That should be one of the first things we want to do in our life is pay off our debts. And so we should want to help those people know the way of God more perfectly. Do we know that the gospel is incontrovertibly great in the message that it conveys and the wisdom of God's word? Yes. And we should want to carry it because of that fact and we should be in debt to its greatness. Did Jesus Christ die for us so that we who live should live for him who died for us? Yes, we're in debt that way. You may not be an apostle, but what ministry has God given you? I'm going to tell you parents right now, woe is you if you preach not the gospel to your children. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is what Paul did to the churches of Jesus Christ. That's what fathers better do. So when Paul says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, you better preach it to your children. And woe is you if you don't. And woe is your children if you don't. And if you've lived a sinful life in the past, and if you have things that you regret, and if you have things that have cost your children or anyone else, I say to you that you have a debt to pay like Paul did. Paul had persecuted the church of God, and now he wanted to make up for it by serving the church of God. I know this verse is ministerial but I want to make an application to you. I don't want you getting past Romans 1.13, just saying Paul didn't want them ignorant that he wanted to get to Rome and that he was a debtor because of all the things he had done in his life and because he was a great Christian, he was a debtor. No, we're all debtors in our own fields of responsibility. Lord, help us. I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, Greeks can be citizens of Greece. Greeks can be in the Bible, a, res- a designation for Gentiles, like it's going to be in about two verses. Or Greeks can simply mean the educated, civilized nations of the earth, as opposed to another kind of nations of the earth called barbarians. And that's the distinction being made here. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. I am willing to preach in Athens and Rome, Alexandria, and other centers of learning. And I am a debtor to preach on the island of Melita. 
where there are uneducated, uncivilized, unrefined people that live on that island. And they're called barbarians. If you'll read about it in Acts chapter 28, Paul lands in this island, 27 and 28. He lands in an island, he finds out the name is Melita, and he says the people that were there were barbarians. That doesn't mean that they were running around naked with bones stuck through their lips. You know, and the idea that you get of a barbarian it just means they weren't fit for Mars Hill or the Areopagus. They weren't educated like the Greeks. Because the Greeks seek after wisdom. And that's what's being used here. The, the Greeks were educated. They were refined. They thought themselves so. And Paul said, I am debtor to preach to those kind of people. And I am debtor to preach to barbarians. We refer to some nations in the earth as third world. Does that mean they have the number three in the name of their nation? Or a number three in all of their zip codes? Or in their area code? What does it mean when we call them third world? It means that they're way behind. What did they mean in the Bible when they called certain people barbarians? That they ate each other? That they were cannibals? Don't think cannibal. That's a little extreme for what's meant here. What's meant here is just uncivilized peoples, uneducated peoples, unrefined, not the finery that lived in Rome. I am debtor to preach to all kinds. Both the wise and unwise make making the same distinction. The wise of education. The wise of this world as far as their refinement and their upbringing. And the unwise of this world. He's not referring to the spiritual distinction Jesus made when he said that the truth has been hid from the wise and prudent and revealed unto babes. He's talking about a difference not in character of heart, but difference in, in upbringing, in training, in education. The difference that, that existed distinctly in the world at that time. Because there were nations that had accepted the wisdom of the Greeks, the education of the Greeks, and thought themselves to be very refined and civilized. And there were other nations that did not have any of that advantage or benefit to whatever degree it was an advantage or benefit. And they were barbarians. And Paul said, I'm debtor to all kinds of men. If you want the bottom line of verse 14, I am debtor to all kinds of men. I am debtor to the better kinds. I am debtor to the lower kinds. I am a debtor to the wise and to the unwise. So... Because of what I have just said in verse 13, that oftentimes I wanted to come and visit you. And because of what I've just said in verse 14, that I am debtor to all kinds of men. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. This is very logical as he brings his introduction to a conclusion. I thank my God... Through Jesus Christ for your faith that it's well spoken of throughout the whole world. I make requests that I can come and see you. I pray always that I can come and see you because I long to see you that I may impart to you a spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. That is, so that we can have some mutual comfort together for our faith around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've tried to come to see you before, but I've been hindered so far by God's providence in my life. I'm a debtor. To preach to all kinds. I can't wait to get to Rome. I don't care if there's barbarians in your assembly. And there's Greeks in your assembly. I don't care if there's educated, uneducated, wise or unwise in your assembly. Whoever is in your assembly. I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. Because I want to see some fruit. I am a debtor to the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. I serve him with my full spirit in the gospel of his son. So... In the way that I have specified in the previous verses, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, along with those 
Gentiles that he had had fruit with in other places, like he says in the last part of verse 13, even as among other Gentiles. He is letting Rome know, though I'm coming to you later, you haven't been later in my thoughts. You are a primary object of my concern and care. I've tried to visit you, but I I want to accomplish the same thing with you that I've been able to accomplish anywhere else. Paul gave everything that he could for the gospel's for gospel salvation, for the elect's sake. Therefore, I'm going to quote it again. I know when I quote verses twice. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So as much as in me is, how much was in Paul? There was no one else like him. He labored more abundantly than they all. He fought a good fight. He kept the faith until he had finished his course. He worked hard, stayed focused, and never looked back from the plow. When he put his hand to the plow, he never looked back, wishing he had a different job. Jesus said, the man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Paul was never like that. Paul plowed, and Paul plowed every day, and he did it with all that was in him. And he said that he was ready to do it as much as was in him. His spirit was wanting him to get to Rome to where he could give them the best that he had. He had no reservations or hindrances that would keep him from preaching to the Romans. He didn't care if they were Greeks or barbarians. He didn't care if they were wise or unwise. He just wanted to serve them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am ready to preach the gospel. Paul was a preacher out of necessity by God's call of him. You know, he tells us, he's this plain about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, Jesus Christ didn't call me to baptize. My main work was not baptizing. I had other men doing that. And he, he lists off a few of the people that he baptized at the church at Corinth. My calling was to preach the gospel. He says, I know it would have caused problems if I'd have baptized more of you Corinthians because you'd have been saying, well, Paul baptized me, and you're only baptized by Apollos, or you're baptized by Cephas. Christ didn't call me to baptize. He called me to preach his gospel. Paul did baptize. But that wasn't the main thrust of his ministry. His ministry was to bear the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's ready to go and do that at Rome. I am ready to preach the gospel. The next verse he's going to say, because I'm not ashamed. I'll take it right into the palace of the Caesar. I will take it into the palace of the emperor. I'll take it right into the epicenter of the Roman Empire. I am not ashamed of the gospel. But notice who he wants to preach it to. So, as much as in me is... I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He doesn't say, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach it to the rest of the citizens of Rome. I want to preach it to you that are at Rome. Because he's already explained why. I want the benefit of mutual faith. If, if I don't preach to believers, they're not going to believe what I say. And it's going to be miserable. I want to establish you. I want to impart a spiritual gift. So it's very strange wording here in verse 15 compared to the missionary emphasis that we hear so many times. If there's a missionary emphasis, you're going to have to find it in another context. Because it's not here. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. What is the, who is the you? To those that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's who. The ones he's been praying for, that he might impart a spiritual gift to them. I'm repeating myself, that he might establish them in the faith. 
for the mutual comfort of them around the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we read the Bible, that's what it says in verse 15. So half of what me in, so half of what is in me is ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome, and the other half can't wait to get to the mall so I can preach the pagans who hate Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything like that. If there's a place in the Bible that teaches us that, we're going to have to find it elsewhere. But we can't find it here. And this is important for us to understand verse 16, which by God's grace will open up next Sunday, which 16 and 17 are summary verses of the whole epistle. And we better rightly divide them, or we're going to be missing things all the way through the next ten chapters. So, as much as in me is, and he's already explained that, I thank God for your faith. I want to go preach to people that love Jesus Christ and live like it. I want to impart to you a spiritual gift. I've been praying for it for a long time. I'm hoping that God will get me by a prosperous journey to come and see you. I can't wait for the mutual profit that we're going to get around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to establish you in the truth. I'm a debtor to all kinds of men. I can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is a fantastic message. I'm not ashamed of it, even though I'm going to go into the center of learning. One of the centers of learning of the known world at that time, David said, I am not ashamed to speak of thy commandments before kings. Psalm 119, I believe it's verse 46 or 146. Paul had the same attitude, and we ought to have that same attitude. What did Paul preach? He preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How did Paul preach? Without human art or wisdom. He dumbed the message down to make sure that those that responded to it believed it and obeyed it and wanted to be baptized were doing it because of the power of God in their lives, not because Paul was an eloquent, persuasive orator. To you that are at Rome also. As he's going to tell him in chapter 15, I've preached everywhere. I've preached all the way around. And when he says around, you've got to look at a map and find him at Antioch of Syria. He preached all the way around to Illyricum. That's backwards, sorry. You know, he started at Antioch, went around the Mediterranean Sea, across the way up into Europe, Yugoslavia, what used to be called Yugoslavia. I've preached the gospel all the way around, all the way to Illyricum. But I want to get to Rome and preach to you also. He was committed and desirous. Of getting to Rome. His desire was not to preach to Romans considered as Romans, but Roman Christians considered as the faithful who already believe the gospel. It's a heretical travesty that most assume preaching is merely to elicit a decision and then to go to the next audience. You know, Paul, you're wasting your time. Why do you want to go preach to those who already believe the gospel and whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world? Because that's what preaching is for. It's to establish them in the faith so that they can grow up and be fruitful Christians. The gospel only benefits believers. The gospel can't help the natural man. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. You want to do your best when preaching the gospel to avoid natural men. It's a waste of time. They'll end up looking for a gun to shoot you. You don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't give that which is holy to dogs. Jesus taught that. The gospel isn't to get someone saved because it's not a vehicle of saving them in the way that that term is used by the rest of the Christian world. The gospel is to take those that God has saved and to educate them and inform them about what God has done for them. And so Paul couldn't wait to get to Rome because Paul had a load. 
Paul had a load, and it doesn't matter what apostle had got there before him, Paul had a bigger load. And Paul was going to teach them the gospel in its, full, in its fullness and by the power of the Holy Spirit and impart to them a spiritual benefit so that they could be established in the truth. Gospel can't help the natural man. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. But the natural man is enmity against the law of God, and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal man, the carnal mind, Romans 8, 7, and 8. Paul wanted to get there and preach to these believing Roman saints. And as much as was in him, his, he said, whom I serve with my spirit. How much of his spirit? All of it. How much of you are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question we, we need to answer. You say, well, when Paul's traveling, how would he find God's elect and avoid natural men? Oh, good question. I'm so glad you asked. The Bible tells us what his evangelistic methods were. It tells us very carefully in four verses. In Acts 17, it tells us what his manner was, what his habits were. He would go into a town, get the yellow pages, or go online, and find where the synagogue was. And he would go to the synagogue, and when they gave an opportunity to open the Scriptures and have a word of exhortation for the people, he'd show them that the Old Testament prophecies were of Jesus Christ. And he would open and allege that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Because, see, when he went to a synagogue, he found people that already believed in Jehovah of the Hebrews, who already had a Bible and trusted the Bible as God's revelation. When you're dealing with somebody that doesn't believe the Bible is God's Word, would you help me get started with them? Would you tell me where you're going to go? Do you want to start with the Book of Mormon or the Koran? Mad Magazine or the Hardy Boys Mysteries? Or the John Birch Society literature? What are you going to start with? You say, well, how did the Gospel ever go to those who didn't believe the Bible? By apostles. They carried it worldwide. And do you know what? When nobody believed the Bible, but there were some of God's elect there, do you know how they got their attention? They spoke in their language per with perfect fluency, though they had never learned it. Right. They raised dead relatives, healed the sick, and drank poison, and nothing happened to them. He sat around a fire, and a viper came out of the fire and latched onto his finger there on the island of Melita. And see, they all knew he was a prisoner. And all these barbarians, in their uneducated minds... Oh, Lord, thank you for uneducated minds. They said, that man is suffering the vengeance of God right now. Look at uneducated helped them, didn't it? This man is suffering the vengeance of God right now because he's been preserved on this ship as a prisoner. He's going to Rome to be judged. God's judged him already. Fate has come and grabbed him by that viper. But Paul shook it off. When Paul shook it off and didn't fall down dead, they said, man must be a God. Then they wanted to worship him. You know, that gave them an audience for a few minutes to find that if there were any elect among them. But you can't do that. So what, what do we look for? We look for those that love God's Word and have a desire for Jesus Christ in their hearts, and we explain to them the way of God more perfectly. Right. And Paul wanted to do that to the Romans. So he said, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Right. May the Lord bless. The preaching down through verse 15, and may the Lord open our eyes and our hearts to what's contained in 16 and 17 to set the foundation for the rest of the doctrinal portion of this epistle. May Jesus Christ be praised.